Can't Say is a sociology podcast that poses more questions than answers. Join your hosts, doctors, Nama Carlin and Melanie White in a journey to make the familiar unfamiliar. Carlin. Thank you for joining us today. Nama, oh my goodness, we have had quite a season. I know. It's, we, we, I feel like we've, we've been through so much. I have a question for you. Sure. I think it's the one that we began our uh, podcast series with, mm-hmm. which is, what is the self? And so Nama, you've been here along with me. And I'd like to give you just a few moments to think about this. And I can see you thinking and musing and thinking and musing. And now being prepared for Nama. What is the self? I think the self, and this is going to be not a cop-out answer, considering we spent an entire podcast series talking about it. I think it's difficult to define. I think it even escapes definition. We've come to consider the self in relation to the things that we know as, as humans and our, our history, our politics, our philosophy. When we think of the self as we have done in this podcast in relation to other beings, animals, non-human beings, then the question becomes so much more complicated. Can animals possess a self? Well, for some people, they cannot because they cannot possess logic or reason or morality. So. I don't really know what I think in the end. I think I just think it's it's everything. And I don't know the answer to this question. What do you think the self is? Well, I was reflecting on your answer. And I think mine is kind of similar in a way. Um, but I think for me, the self isn't necessarily a thing. It's not something that... Uh, we can necessarily point to. It might be an assemblage of different elements that taken together, depending on the perspective that we're adopting, we can say, ah, here, in this moment, in this context, this is a self. But it doesn't necessarily have any essential qualities or essential elements. I think I'm quite persuaded by the very fact of such diversity in each of these thinkers' perspectives about the capacity for knowledge or the capacity for morality. I'm quite persuaded that, um, in fact, there's such incredible variability about how we come to define the self that, in fact, it seems like quite an ethical thing to do to resist defining the self in the manner in which you have presented it. Like, hey, dude, hold up. I don't think we actually should define the self. And not to think about the self as necessarily a cop-out, as a, mm, really? (laughs) Have I mentioned how happy I am about our new recording studio and our sounds? Anyway, so I think it's, it's the case for really trying to think thoughtfully about multiple different perspectives on what selfhood is. And I guess I would want to refuse the idea that we need to define or declare or decide what the self is, because I think once we do that, it forecloses the possibility of investigating or exploring or uh, considering uh, possible forms of selfhood. So can I ask you a question? 
why is the self so important? I think that you're absolutely right that the resistance of self is in a sense an ethical stance because this concept or this framework has been used historically and as we've seen through Derrida's argument to justify violence and to justify segregation in a way that is necessary because, you know, we eat animals, we own animals, so we don't have an equal relationship nor do we have an equal relationship to some people, other people. So I'm just wondering, why is the self such an interesting topic? Why is it so important? One of the interesting things about theorizing the self is it, especially if we think about Derrida's contribution in our last podcast, is that the self constitutes a limit. And it's a limit um, of the condition of possibility for violence. And so the self, the presence of a self, the capacity to articulate a self as defined by any number of different potential capacities creates the legitimacy for a violence against animals. And so I suppose there are two questions that you asked. One was, why is the study of the self important? And I think the study of the self is important because we come to learn and interrogate the way in which this complex or assemblage of different ideas that gets unified under this word self becomes deployed in these really interesting ways to legitimate violence or nonviolence against animals, for animals, etc. For the second question that you posed, which was, why is the self important? I think it's something, it's a category that seems to express something of our individual uh, innate experience. And so it, whether or not we call it self or whether or we call it consciousness or whether we call whatever word we assign to it, we have this idea that we have some sort of unique presence in this world that mediates our thoughts, our values, our feelings, our, um, our values and beliefs, and so that those ideas get captured by this notion of self, it becomes important as a mechanism of self-exploration, of understanding who we are, both as a broader society, but also as a community of people and of each of us as individuals. What I really love about doing this podcast series is the fact that when we talk about these concepts and talk about self, it also is a, is a meditative practice in that it anchors you in these thoughts. And as you go along your day and you don't necessarily think about your selfhood and if there is a selfhood and what animals possess, what sort of self or, um, as you said, it can be anything that exists that mediates your your conduct in the world, but yet in the very act of talking about it, it's this experiencing and, and knowledge of something present, mm -hmm. but not exactly understanding what it is or knowing what it is. And I think it's this opening up, really, that we, our, our tagline is that we pose more questions than answers. And I think the question of selfhood... We can just tick the box. Yeah. Can you, Melanie, give us a 
introduction into today's final episode. Well, I was reflecting on what you just said about the idea of mediation and the way in which our uh, experience of self uh, becomes reflected back to us in all of these interesting, strange, unique ways. And I know from talking to you in different contexts, one of the things that we share is the love of reading interesting works of fiction. One of the fascinating things about fiction is that fiction allows us the opportunity to explore the complexities of everyday life and experience in ways that philosophy or theory, sometimes because it's so blunt or so stark or the word escapes me, there's something so formal about it, that about the practice of theoretical or conceptual reflection, that there's something quite marvelous about the lyrical quality of good, deep fiction that really uh, resonates with one's, one's selfhood. And I know that for me, one of the uh, works of fiction that I've read uh, that really captures a lot of the qualities of these questions about selfhood is uh, the South African uh, writer uh, John Coetzee's Lives of Animals, which was initially delivered as uh, a series of lectures for uh, the Tanner Lecture Series. Much like De Waals. <gasps> That's right. I've completely forgotten. Two, uh, two of our people actually are such fancy pants that uh, they've given these, these esteemed public lectures. Um, but, you know, for me, Kutsi's uh, work really spoke to me. And I know that it does for you, but you have, have a different novel in mind that has spoken to you. I agree with you that literature provides it so speculative and explorative. Good literature for me is something that allows you to fall into the wor words and just experience them. And in a sense, sometimes you don't actually know too much what's going on, but you feel it in your body as you read. One of the books that has been most, uh, um, that has stayed with me the longest is The Vegetarian. Han Kang's novel. She's a South Korean author. This book has just stayed with me for so long. I think I've read it three times. And every time there's new discoveries. For me, reading this book, The Vegetarian, and your book, The Lives of Animals, and our questions of selfhood and human and animal, I feel like our discussion should incorporate or enter into dialogue. We enter Han Kang and Kutsi into dialogue. Oh, very nice. Let's start with yours first, and I can jump in and interject, if, or, or contribute to, not interject. <laughs> I can jump in if I want, but let's start with yours first, because yours is really um, one that we've, we've both read and loved and has uh, kind of followed this, this series for, from the start. So let's start with yours. The book, Lives of Animals, is essentially uh, uh, two, two short stories that were delivered by Kutsi for the Tanner Lecture on Human Values. And the first lecture is titled The Philosophers and the Animals, and the second one is titled The Poets and the Animals. I think one of the important, you know, just to sort of sketch out the plot, uh, there is a, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Costello who is in her advanced age, who has been awarded a literary prize, and she uh, takes a flight from Australia, and the flight 
brings her to the university where her son John uh, teaches. John, and I love the uh, the naming here. John is just like the every man, the every John. You know, there's something quite nice about this. John is married to an analytical philosopher named Norma, who is not shy to express her analytical reasoning on all and many things. And uh, essentially, the plot is very simple. Elizabeth comes to visit. Uh, she delivers a lecture. They have a dinner and then uh, she stays the next day for a small workshop and then she goes home. Yet the art and the craft in this writing is about articulating the relationships and expectations and particularly around the question of the lives of animals. And in this, the opening passages to the story begin with Elizabeth coming over to John and Norma's house for dinner and she questions why their children aren't joining them at the table. And Norma says, ah, well, I've given them uh, their dinner early. And it turns out, of course, that uh, Elizabeth is a vegetarian. And yet this ethical commitment has forged an ethical divide within the household. And it's that complex of relationships and needing to adjudicate ethical decision that brings out so many of the contradictions of everyday life, the challenges associated with catering for difference, different ethical commitments, whether it's religious commitments about the food that we eat or uh, the uh, injunctions against eating pork or eating beef or eating animal and how difficult and challenging that is to navigate in a familial space where there is this emphasis on community, communal uh, dining and the communal breaking of uh, food. And so it's this uh, interesting setup that positions Elizabeth Costello as a um, a stalwart animal rights activist and the lecture that she gives un unfolds accordingly and the various characters in in the story end up reinforcing this this impression of Elizabeth as a um, a, a fundamental purist and there is this mo uh, marvelous moment and spoiler alert there is this marvelous moment at the dinner when the, and, and if anyone has ever been to academic dinners, they can be the most horrendous affairs where, you know, wah, 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 wah. And so there is Elizabeth Costello at this dinner where the um, university president says, oh, and so, Elizabeth, tell us. Um, uh, about, uh, you know, why it is that she is vegetarian. And, oh, my goodness, Elizabeth, you know, you, you know, you are so incredibly pious or my deep respect for you for upholding your moral convictions, uh, something along those lines. And she says, well, you know what, actually, I, I don't think of myself in those terms. Actually, you know, I wear leather shoes. And... It's in that moment where the contradiction between Elizabeth's decision to not consume 
animal meat, animal flesh, is juxtaposed against another decision to wear leather. And that, for me, is such an interesting, stark depiction and distills into relief the various contradictions that we have in everyday life, in our lived realities, about what it is to live and practice ethical conduct, however each of us defines it. And if we're thinking specifically with respect to animal animal harm or animal treatment, is it, you know, where do we draw the line? Is it uh, by not eating uh, eating uh, meat? Is it uh, by not consuming any animal products whatsoever? Is it by refusing to wear uh, wear leather? You know, if one takes seriously the question of the manufacture, the way our whole society is organized on the basis of the mistreatment of animals for the benefit of human beings, actually, it is incredibly, if not impossible, to live a life where we are to some extent dependent upon animal products. So this raises for me interesting questions about the ethics of purity and uh, the ethics of purity as much as we might be able to say, oh yes, you know, I am vegan, I use no animal products whatsoever. Actually, we are all imbricated in this very complex institutional technology of animal farming for human benefit. The ethics of purity the demand is to make a decision and the decision has to be either or and the c- to consume animal to eat animal to wear animal that is a decision that you have to consciously make and in a sense like you said you can be you can be vegan you can live through the world but you still are implicated in the structural um mechanism of animal cruelty and so what struck me in the vegetarian is this continual refrain away from, in a sense, in the end, the, this entire structure of, of cruelty. But it does so in a, in a very violent way, which is the interesting part. So I'll give a brief synopsis of, of this book. I'll read the first line because I think it sets up the story. This is how it starts. Before my wife turned vegetarian, I'd always thought of her as completely unremarkable in every way. I think it's just you read that and it's, I mean, I think it's funny. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a light comedy. It's this unremarkability. Meat consumption is so um, so endemic and so part of cultural and social identity. And so it becomes this completely unremarkable thing. But the protagonist as well, the way she's been described, and this is also the story in relation or um, how, uh, how narrative is told in relation, she never really gets to, to speak or to say, oh, she does get to speak, but we never hear her side of the story um, uh, in, a, in, in a full kind of fully developed way. This story, yours is divided into, into two parts, but this is divided into three parts. Um, and they're told from the perspective or the, the view of three different characters that uh, are present in and shape our protagonist's life and her, and her her impact on on their lives in and it for in some ways ways that trigger deep violent reactions. So the first section is told by her husband. The middle section is told by the brother-in-law, and the final final chapter is told by the sister. Here's how we meet our protagonist. So she wakes up from a, from a nightmare, a violent, aggressive, bloody, and she empties her fridge, entire fridge, out of animal products. And this is not just uh, in 
you know, we think of vegetarian as, you know, we don't eat animal flesh, but we do eat some animal products. We eat dairy, we eat eggs, we eat all these things, but this is a complete um, refutation of anything that is animal. For people reading this book, it has many interpretations. It's a statement about South Korean culture. It's a statement about sexuality. It's a statement about patriarchy and patriarchal structures. But for me, it's something, I read into it something something else or something that isn't so framed in those ways. I mean, definitely you can have a sociological analysis of this book and what it says about South Korea and the patriarchy. But I read it in terms of what are the what are the limits or what characterizes the human and human life and what are the limits of the human and what happens when you try and resist a life of violence if it's even possible and this I guess goes into the eth- the ethics of purity is that is that even possible and what happens you know there's also a scene similar to your book where there's a dinner there's also a dinner here and the discovery of, of vegetarianness or not eating animal in this dinner it, it results in a, a violent confrontation where the, the father tries to force feed the protagonist meat, animal, and she resists. And it's an incredibly uh, evocative and painful scene to read. This sense of, of loss and anger that comes from making a moral stand. And this stand is, I want to do a life without violence. The problem is, though, it's impossible to do a life without violence if it's a human life. This violence is always already part of being in the world. So Hank's Kang character has this sense where it's she doesn't her desire isn't e- being plant based, but she wants to transform into being plant like. And I think that's the interesting part for me when you come. To, it doesn't come to a con- clear conclusion, much like your book. The questions keep being raised. There isn't quite a, a finite answer. But in the provocations that it puts to us is the impossibility of standing in an, in an ethical, moral decisions about being in the world because you are already always already part of that system. What's interesting to me is I was thinking about the title of uh, Kotsi's book, The Lives of Animals, and I was thinking about uh, The Vegetarian, which is the title of uh, Han Kang's book. And it struck me that an alternative title for uh, Hung Kang's book would be The Lives of Plants, because there is this interesting transformation that occurs uh, in the end of the book, where, as you say, if this is a book that is uh, meditating on the conditions and possibilities of violence and also through the experiential. the experience of perpetual violences and what is possible, what is necessary in order to escape that violence. And again, the uh, uh, question as we end uh, end the book is whether or not it is possible um, and if all attempts to escape violence are thwarted by uh, again, another spoiler, uh, planting oneself. You know, how do we plant oneself? How do we ground oneself in a context where the very nature of our very being is one of violence? And so um, I was thinking about uh, the question of how it is that we eat animal flesh when we ourselves are animal. And I love how Uh, the vegetarian this book ends up taking that just one step further which is if we are animal and we eat animal then 
what of this arbitrary division, which goes back into the 18th century with this artificial distinction established by, you know, thinkers like Xavier Bichat, who uh, distinguishes between vegetative life and animal life. Yet, what we all share is this sense of living in a world. And yet the question will be, is the world in which we live necessarily the same? We move from the lives of animals to considering the lives of plants. And now I have a follow-up question for you, Nama. Do plants have selves? I just wanted to say that alternative title to Kutsi's book would be also the vegetarian. Mm -hmm. And so to your point about plants and selfhood, I don't know that I could say that plants have a self, but I also can't say that they don't have a self. I can't, I can't say that. I can't say either. I think that the question is open. What do you think, Melanie? Do plants have selves? It's such an interesting question, isn't it? I'm not sure, and I think it's, it's one of these... I think one answer is to say, I'm not sure, and to establish, well, it's entirely possible that they do. But to establish that they have selves, it would following the line of argument in the various thinkers that we've entertained, that they would somehow need to have some kind of capacity, a capacity that works as a mechanism uh, of distinction. I guess this is, this is one of the ways that many of these thinkers have been thinking about, about selfhood. But in principle, I suppose I have it's a, it's a difficult question because I suppose it's evaluating what are the stakes and what are the ethics of extending this word, the self, mm -hmm. to non-human animals in the first instance and to non-animal uh, living things in the second. What are the ethical and political constraints or requirements of doing so? Because I think just as it is a certain violence to make these often arbitrary distinctions between human and non-human animal, once we introduce plant life or another category of living things into this discussion, it then also becomes a certain form of violence in terms of our philosophical and theoretical commitments because doing so uh, transforms the basic categories and concepts that we're working with. And so I guess I will cop out here and say I'm not sure I think I'm open to exploring that possibility, but at present I'm not wanting to decide on it or to definitively say yes or no. I think I would respond and say, well, it's possible, but just as my magic eight ball says, I'm leaning toward no. I want to pick up your point about the, the ethical implications and considerations. It seems to me that we resort to the language of plant when we uh, try to make an argument, one that challenges people's ethical, ethical and moral um, standpoint to not eat animal. Do you not think that grass, uh, if you cut it, will it not uh, tremble? 
it's this equivocation of plant life and animal life, but still human life is uh, separate from and the consumer and the one that call make these ethical decisions. And I think that to me that those conversations, they're so unproductive because kind of does it matter if plants suffer? I mean, animals suffer, humans suffer. Is suffering the privilege of suffering or that allows us to make determinations on how we behave and how we address other beings? But I have another thought in relation to Kang's novel, even this desire to become plant in a sense, it's the impossibility of purity. So the question around really uh, Hang Kang's novel is the question of death and death and life. So these more positions and binaries, dualisms that we, we talked about when we talked about Derrida. And so what does it actually mean to die? And in this novel, to remove yourself from, from social life, from the familial uh, living, and to excise yourself from that in your decision to live uh, um, a pure, ethical life, plant-like, is impossible. It's violent. It conjures a violent reaction. And so I don't know. I think that, I think that this, this novel kind of explores the question of selfhood implicitly, and I quite like that, that it resolves in an impossibility in the end. Impossibility, contradiction, indeterminacy. These are the answers we've come up with in response to the question, what is the self? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. I was thinking to myself just in, in response to your observation about the self, and I thought, ah... This is Nama's Deridian uh, commitments showing forth here in terms of, of thinking about that question of suffering, the, the fact that suffering is itself not a capacity. It is actually a condition of life and that living we do, this is just what life is. And suffering is a condition of life for human, non-human animals, for plants, etc. And once we make the philosophical move to argue that suffering is an ontological state as opposed to something that we can either strive toward or a capacity for, then this actually changes the nature of some of our reflections about what it is to exhibit or to have a self. And with those points, Bellamy, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Oh, Nama, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I've learned so much from you. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. I guess you won't see us next time because we won't be here, but we hope you've enjoyed joining us on this journey, thinking about selfhood. Absolutely. And I think what we're going to have to do, Nama, is we're going to have to see what our next journey will consist of. Do you think you have it in you for another season? I think I do. After a break. Let's After take a, break. a bit of a break. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll put our thinking caps on. We'll uh, put our thinking caps on ourselves <laughs> and, uh, and take it from there. Anyway, to all of our listeners, thank you so much for supporting us through our first season. If you like this series, if you like this episode, please give us a rating, give us a review. It helps people find us. We need to increase our stats in Kenya. Stat. This is Melanie White for You Can't Say That. <laughs> I'm Nama Carlin. Thanks for joining us. You Can't Say That is a Carlin White collaboration. Francesca Rimi Chang designed our logo. Stephen Hunt composed our theme song. And Chris 
See you in 2020.